James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What is it you want me to do? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognized as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. I've been reminding you this year that we call three of the four Gospels synoptics because they look like each other. John's Gospel is quite different from the other three, just in, in his emphases and the way he puts the story of Jesus together. But even in the three that look like each other, there are differences. For example, in this story today, Mark tells us that James and John came to Jesus and asked for special favor. When Matthew starts dealing with this story a few years later, he says uh, the mother of James and John asked for special favor. And when Luke deals with the story, he decides not to mention any of them by name, just to say a dispute arose among them as to who was to be greatest Luke also notices that Mark has used a very special word in quoting Jesus, though Jesus didn't speak Greek, you remember. He spoke Aramaic. But the Gospels are written in Greek, and so the Greek word that Mark has used for the Aramaic word Jesus used about serving literally means to serve at table. So Luke puts it in that kind of setting. setting. He says, Who's greatest, a person who sits at the head table or the person who's waiting on the head table? Of course, it's the person who sits at the head table, yet I'm among you as one who waits tables. So even the synoptics tell the story slightly different with a slightly different emphasis, one after the other. Let's take a look. Number one, a dispute arose among them as to who was to be greatest. Specifically, I want to sit on your right and I want my brother to sit on your left. We've had a busy fall with athletics. We have six wonderful grandchildren, and they're all involved. Our Abigail is now ninth grade, and she's in the Palm Squad for Jinx ninth grade. Two ninth grade football teams, and the Palm Squad has to be there for both teams. So you, one usually plays Monday night, one Tuesday night. So if we're going to see Abby at all the home games, then we have to go two times to watch Abby and the Palm Group perform fourth Jinx ninth grade. Parker's playing Jinx eighth grade football. Josh is playing sixth grade Jinx football. Then Jason and Janet have three little girls, eight, five, and three, and they're all playing soccer. You ever been to a three-year-old girl soccer game? <laughs> Gail and I showed up for the very first game of the season. And, of course, a fair amount of time was spent just trying to get the three-year-olds onto the field. But finally, when their three lined up against our three and they got them all right close to the circle in the middle of the field, a soccer ball was placed down, and one of the coaches said, go kick the ball. Now, three-year-olds don't kick the ball 10 yards, 20 yards. They bump it, you know, so... So one little girl finally, they, they get around sort of like penguins just a little bit. And so 
One little girl moved toward the ball, and she bumped it maybe 12, 18 inches. And with the coaxing of all the parents and grandparents, the other five closed in, and it looked like a rugby scrum, you know, six, six little bitty girls all, you know, sort of. Bump. And suddenly the ball popped out, and one of our team was bumping this ball along in front of her. <laughs> Precious little girl, sweet little face, hair pulled back in a ponytail, little studs in her ears, no expression on her face, arms down by her side. She's bumping the ball, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. And finally she gets there, and it rolls into the net. And she went... <laughs> She was precious. It's got to where we root for McGuire to roll one in because she always goes. <laughs> and that's what we all want to do. We all want to do something special so we get to go, yay for me. But there's something much bigger here. Mark is saying that the disciples are not hearing what Jesus is telling them. They're getting so close to Jerusalem now, and they're not hearing. They still are expecting the Messiah to sit on the throne of David. And one wants to be on the right and the other on the left. Number two, I'm among you as one who waits on tables. And I'm going to expect you to act as if you, too, wait on tables. Have you seen Condoleezza Rice's uh, autobiography? It's just out this week. She's been making lots of talk shows to promote her book. If you think she's going to tell you all about the Bush administration, you're wrong. She ends just a month before she goes to Washington. She tells everything up to that point. She was born 1954 in Birmingham, Alabama, a very segregated Birmingham, Alabama, and she's an African-American. Only child of a black couple in Birmingham. You recall as the government started saying to communities, you can't have swimming pools for white children if you don't have swimming pools for black children, and eventually you've got to let white ones and black ones all swim together. So Birmingham decided, then nobody swims. And Condoleezza said she didn't learn to swim until she was an adult because nobody got to swim in Birmingham when she was growing up. Her parents took her to a big department store just before Christmas when she was a little girl, and she was told right away, Santa Claus does not hold little black children. Go away. When finally the Civil Rights Act was passed, her father said to Condoleezza and her mom, you know, there's a hamburger place here in Birmingham that's said to be the best in the country. We've never been welcomed there. Now we get to go and buy hamburgers. And she said, my daddy drove us out of our black neighborhood to this hamburger place and ordered hamburgers. They were delivered. She said they smell good. Roll back the paper. The bun had been steamed wonderfully well. I took a big bite. I knew something was wrong. My daddy turned on the light. All we had gotten was two buns filled with raw onions. That's all. 
Condoleezza Rice said, my mother and father told me, you will have to be better than the rest. You will have to be smarter than the rest. You'll have to get up earlier and go to bed later than the rest. She was graduated from high school with honors. She went to Stanford University, was graduated with honors, master's degree with honors, PhD with honors, was made a professor at Stanford University and then became the first African-American woman in the history of the United States of America to be our Secretary of State for all eight years. Do you see the title of her book? Extraordinary, Ordinary People. Extraordinary, Ordinary People. Number three. I'm giving myself a ransom for many. A ransom for people held captive. A ransom for people who are not free, but who would like to be. This past week, one of David Mamet's plays opened on Broadway. Not a new play. In fact, it's one he wrote nearly 40 years ago. David Mamet is now 62 years old. He wrote this play when he was in his 20s. It's called A Life in the Theater. It's been produced many times, but never on Broadway. It's just a two-man show, an older man, a younger man. Patrick Stewart's now playing that older man of Star Trek fame. So it's going to draw good crowds because of the actors involved. But David Mamet was being asked about his play. He said, well... You know, it's really between two people, one older, one younger, about the problems that always arise between these two different generations. And when I wrote the play, I was in my 20s, so I gave the best lines to the young man. Now I'm 62. If I could redo it, I'd give more good lines to the old man, he said. I'm a father myself, he said. I have four children. And one after the other has come to adulthood. And as each one starts to leave, and I give a final hug, I know I was lenient when I should have been strict. I was strict when I should have been lenient. I hovered when I should have given more freedom. And I was not there when they needed me close by. I didn't get it right. Like my mom and papa didn't get it right. And my grandparents didn't get it right. And my children will not get it right either. All families are dysfunctional. Every generation passes on some problems to the next. I read this the other night, but I'm working on this sermon. We're all enslaved. We all are bound. The question is, do you believe God Almighty loved you enough that he's provided a vehicle by which sin can no longer bind you? Even death can no longer bind you? Number four, by this 
you will recognize the great ones, that they're willing to serve. The great ones are willing to serve for the well-being of another. Thursday week ago, Gail and I drove down to my hometown in Texas. It was the first time we'd been back since my mother's funeral in February. My brother was being honored, distinguished alumnus of our high school. The Alumni Association decided a few years ago that 1% surely of the high school graduates should be distinguished and should be so honored. One out of every hundred who've graduated all these years. Pick one out of every hundred. My brother was chosen this year. He is a distinguished alum. He is. My brother was a senior at SMU when our little draft board of our small hometown moved his classification up to A1. 1A, drafted into the Vietnam War. He went to Vietnam, served with distinction in the 4th Infantry. When he got back, he decided he was sick of kids on drugs. They were bombed out of their heads. He'd be a policeman. We all were sure he'd lost his mind. We've been praying for two years. You'd get back from Vietnam in one piece. You're going to be a Dallas police officer? Yep, that's what he said he felt he should do. And so he served for eight years with distinction. He was a SWAT officer for Dallas Police Department. But in the meantime, he'd gotten married, and he and Tony had had two little boys, and he felt he just couldn't support his family the way he wanted to. He's working rock concerts and everything else to try to make a little extra money. So he went back to SMU, even came up to the University of Oklahoma to their graduate school of banking, and then went back to our hometown and helped organize a new bank. He became its president, and for 27 years, he's been president of that bank. 11 years, served on the school board. He's been president of the Lions Club, president of the Chamber of Commerce. He's done everything a person can do in Carthage, Texas, and done it well. He's done them all well. But I want to tell you about another person who was being honored, E. Leon Carter, African-American, younger than my brother. My brother was graduated high school in 63, Leon, 1977, 14 years later. Leon's many accomplishments were told to us. He was graduate Carthage High School, distinguished graduate, East Texas Baptist University, Marshall, Texas, distinguished graduate, Texas Southern University in Houston Law School, distinguished graduate, first African-American senior partner in Howard Jackson, one of the major firms in Dallas, Houston, and now a law firm bearing his name, Monk Carter, the Monk is M-U-N-C-K, Carter, big tower just north of SMU in Dallas. The Dallas-Fort Worth Business Journal said there are more than 4,000 attorneys in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Leon Carter is one of the top 15 trial lawyers. There are thousands of attorneys in Texas. He's in the top 50. Several million attorneys in the United States. He's in the top 500 trial lawyers in America. Then it was his turn to speak. He said, my daddy was killed when I was three. 
in an industrial accident down in Galveston, Texas. I lost my father. My mother was 33 years old, had five little children, and no husband. He had just been killed. She didn't know what to do, so she packed up all five of us and moved them home to Panola County, where she had grown up. Tyson Foods had just put a new plant into Carthage, Texas, a chicken-plucking place. My mother got a job plucking chickens. They extended the runway at the Carthage airport so Tyson's jet could get in and out of town. My mother was plucking chickens. But she said to the five of us, some people work eight to five, we will work from can to Kate. Are we clear about that? We will work from can to Kate. I will, so will you. So will you. And then he said, I've never said this to my older brother. He was sitting just a few feet from Gail and me. He paved the way for me. Seven years older. First black athlete to play for Carthage High School after integration. The coaches were good to him. The teachers were good to him. But the fans were hateful, mean, screamed, ranted, and raved at him because black kids weren't supposed to play basketball with white kids. My brother kept his head up. He kept his head up. Graduated high school, graduated college. He was sitting right, daubing at his eyes. Ah, but it was my mother, he said. She was the one. She was the one that convinced three little boys, two little girls, we'll go from can to can't. We'll get up earlier, we'll stay up later, study harder, longer, better. And with all that she was having to do, she never remarried, devoted her life to these five kids of hers, working at Tyson Foods, but every Sunday morning, she's in the choir. Every Sunday night, she's in the choir. She had all five of us lined up on the second pew right out there where she could keep an eye on us. She always sang a little too loudly, he said. And I always thought she was a little off-key. But I believe she was singing so loudly because she wanted these five little ones of hers to know whose side she was on. Or as Condoleezza says, extraordinary, ordinary people. 